hello welcome to my podcast no one wants to read my book please listen to the following warnings this podcast may contain explicit language content and themes there may be some things that could trigger some people there may be some things that could offend some people so please uh, listen with caution also not intended for younger audiences or more sensitive audiences and uh, this is a complete work of fiction by me any resemblance to the people that are depicted in this fiction or is purely coincidental and not intentional is 100% fiction and also it's copywritten by me Serena if you want to reach out the wonderful long name I have for my email is no one wants to read my book at podcast at gmail.com and uh, let's get going. So this is the first official episode of uh, No One Re- Wants to Read My po- my Book. See, I can't even get it straight in my mind. And um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read um, Chapter 1 from The In-Between. I think I released this, I don't know. I don't remember. Sorry. Look it up on Amazon. It's on Amazon Kindle only. And... As I go through this, I'm probably going to find more mistakes because that's just the way it is. I mean, people who are well established with very great editors, and um, I forgot the continuity, uh, the continuity people that keep make sure you don't like mess up your characters or their backstories. I mean, they have like teams of people, and they still you still will find typos or things in the books. So it just happens. But I will take this opportunity. To clean it up if I can and finally set myself down to do the goal of putting a paper book that people can order on demand through Amazon. Um, so here we go and uh, I'll read chapter one and then afterwards I will also read the uh, reading a story that brought the day. As you get into this you will understand it or not but basically let's get going. If you have any questions you can reach out to me on email and I'll try to set up TikTok and Twitter and things like that but right now I'm ready to rock and roll so let's go this is dedicated to my great-grandmother Maul love you loved your stories introduction although it was a full moon the sky glowed purple due to the veil of clouds that shrouded the true location of the illuminated rock Ben knew that she was out there somewhere in the plum sky which gave him the comfort he desired. Ben heard that there was a man in the moon but he always imagined the moon as a beautiful lady with silver eyes and a pale yellow dress. He pretended that it was his mother and she was his guardian in the dark nights in which he feared so greatly. Ben hated the dark as long as he could remember and grandma knew this well for she kept the light in the hallway on at all times so that he would not be afraid of leaving his bed for a glass of water or the occasional nightmare. Under Ben's bed was the floor, and under the floor was the land his family lived on since they immigrated from Ireland over 200 years ago. The story Grandma always told Ben was that the men of the community had a race and his ancestor patriarch had the fastest legs and made it first to the best spot of land in the county. Most of the land was not clear, 
and only an acre remained bare, which was where the cottage stood. The house was not the original house of Ben's ancestors, but rebuilt many times after storms, fires, and the deterioration that comes with houses that attempt to withstand time. This purple sky glowed, which meant it was time to tell the story of the flower. Ben always knew the signs to read which story was coming, but he never knew how to predict what day it would be until it was the very day. Grandma knew how to read the days and their signs weeks in advance, but she told Ben that he would learn with that with age. She also reminded him that the more he heard the same stories over and over again, the easier it would be to see which stories would bring which days, and not the other way around. Ben watched Grandma close his window and curtains. She always did this because she said that she did not want anyone to hear the story, which Ben laughed at because the two lived in isolation. Grandma patted Ben on the head. Now, Ben, one day you will realize that the night air carries sounds further than you think. Always close the windows to keep itching ears from receiving their scratch. Ben never understood Grandma's riddles and parables, but he would listen to her soothing voice until he fell asleep. Grandma tucked Ben in and sat down in her rocking chair next to his bed. She began her story. When I see the purple sky, I must think of the story of the beautiful lady and the flower. Once upon a time, there was a lady that was so beautiful that anyone that looked upon her would fall immediately in love with her. It was not magic, but beauty in its purest form, which no one can resist. One day, a young man was walking down a pathway near a stream where he saw this fair maiden. Because she was so beautiful, he wanted to find something as beautiful as her so that he may tame her heart, for beauty is only lassoed by its own kind. So the man went into the woods to find anything that would compare to her. He searched for weeks, and until one day, he came across a large grove of trees that was so thick that he could barely walk through it due to the entangled roots. However, he did climb through the grove because he saw at the very center tree was a beautiful flower that glowed of such beauty that it reminded him of his love. The flower was at the very top of the center tree, so the man had to climb. It took him a very long time, and upon his arrival to the highest branch, he was very tired. He reached for the flower, and because he was so tired, he misjudged the distance and grabbed the flower just as he began to fall. He fell down a few limbs, but was able to regain his balance and crawl back down to the base of the tree. He quickly ran back to the place where he saw his love stay. He was not able to find her anywhere. Before he could search any more, though, he got feverish and fell into a deep sleep. What he did not realize was that when he began to fall, he received a splinter from the branches that he grasped onto for balance. Though the flower was very beautiful, the tree from which it 
came from was poisonous, and he never woke up again. Ben, he sleeps to this very day. This is a story that our family's burden to bear and joy to tell. As Grandma finished her story, she kissed Ben on the forehead and whispered, Good night. She left Ben's bedroom and walked down the hallway to her room. Ben was very drowsy while he heard the story, so once she shut her bedroom door, he fell asleep. So was Ben's life in those days. He counted the days and the stories that brought them with a sense of volition that most children his age did not possess. While most children watched the sun turn pink before the late summer sunset, Ben thought of Grandma's story of creation, which was memorialized by the day of the pink sunset. Grandma would twist Ben's front curls on his forehead while she recounted the family's sacred story. Before everything formed in the way that your young mind can understand what you would call the world, the earth was dark and alone. She was so lonely that she spun all of her sorrow into a single tear. She held this tear deep within her flesh until it formed a seed. After the agony reached heaven, the sky felt so sad for her that he wanted to hold her close to him. So the sky reached down and held her, and the world had its first rain. This rain watered the seed, and life was born. The beautiful, a beautiful tree grew from this first act of love, and now we are all descendants of that great tree. After years of listening to Grandma's stories, Grandma grew quieter and quieter until she would only repeat a few of the same stories over and over again regardless of the days that brought them. Eventually, she forgot most stories and continuously repeated the same story, in which she changed the details to match some of the stories from the books that Ben knew she, that she loved to read until the early hours of the morning. In the very end, she did not speak at all, but stared at the ceiling with glazed eyes. She could no longer hear or see and Ben knew that she would leave the world soon. When she finally did leave, she went quickly and without her beloved words that she harvested and shared with Ben his entire life. She told him his whole life that he would have to pass this, along the stories to his descendants because she could not take the stories with her where she would go and it was his responsibility to guard them on this earth until he was his turn to join her. Chapter 1 It was five years since Grandma died, and Ben was a man of thirty. Grandma's passing caused him such pain that he dared not tell anyone the stories, although Grandma always told him that none other than his blood descendants could hear. He felt tempted a few times to speak them to a few of his lovers over the years, but he could never bring himself to speak them out loud. And after Grandma passed away, he would rarely allow his thoughts to linger on them, let alone tell another being. This year was no different than any of the other years since Ben's grandmother died. 
He spent the last six months working in a coffee shop located within a big chain bookstore. Today was a special occasion at the bookstore because there was a book signing for a celebrity ghost hunter and parapsychologist named James Graves. And he was so proficient that he was the only ghost hunter that celebrities would allow to search out their haunted Hollywood homes. When his new book on folklore and mythology-based ghost hunts hit the bookshelves, it was an instant bestseller. Mr. Graves researched all the famous myths of different beings, such as werewolves and vampires, and found the exact origin of the spirit and was able to expose some of the myths as simple folklore based on a true story, while others were nothing more than superstitious fiction. Ben stared at the publicity posters for the book, and the television show. He never watched the show, but he recognized the man known as, as James Graves. Bid did not ponder on the issue too long as he assumed that he must have seen Mr. Graves on television sometime or possibly saw the book or a poster somewhere else. The bookstore was due to open in half an hour, and Ben watched the line that wrapped around the building grow longer as more people walked to the front door, stared at the line, and disappeared to join the end. There was a cop there to ensure that the people behaved during the event. Because the outer store walls were almost entirely glass windows, Ben saw the awaiting fans dressed like corpses, zombies, vampires, werewolves, and ghosts. Mr. Graves arrived inside the store from a back entrance. Ben would not have noticed it except the screaming of the fans that caught a glimpse of him walking in the store through the glass windows. Ben's co-worker, Shelley, had a crush on Mr. Graves, and she wanted to greet him personally with refreshments. Ben gladly gave this honor to Shelley, as he did not care one way or the other about the celebrity. Mr. Graves looked much older in person, as the posers were obviously doctored to make him appear the best he possibly could. Mr. Graves looked near 40 in the posters, while in person he looked near 60. Shelley did not seem to mind or notice. The manager of the bookstore joined an ongoing conversation between the publicist and Mr. Graves. He spoke briefly to both and then walked up to the microphone that was set up for Mr. Graves' upcoming reading from his latest book entitled, The Mountains and the Sky, Ghost of the Wood. Okay, everyone, it is now time to open the doors. Good luck, everyone, and remember that our goal is to honor Mr. Graves, who has been so kind to grace us with his presence. Let's give him a hand. Everyone clapped as they took their places. The manager walked slowly to the door and made eye contact with the police officer that was standing in the front of the door. When the officer nodded to the manager, he unlocked the door and opened it slowly. The crowd outside cheered loudly. The line doubled in the last 10 minutes, which tripled since Ben first looked outside through the windows earlier. The customers began filing in one at a time and some grabbed a book for Mr. Graves to sign if they did not bring one with them. Ben did not realize that so many people believed in ghosts or superstitions. He thought it was so silly that people would believe in stories only because they heard it. It could possibly seem more credible because a famous person said it was true, but that was ridiculous to Ben. Celebrities certainly did not mean smart or logical. However, he heard that Mr. Graves was formerly a professor with a doctorate in some field, which would technically seem more credible, but not to Ben. His mind wandered to a place of his contempt, his father. 
His father was a doctor in his field, and yet he believed in all these crazy stories passed down in perpetuity through his bloodline. As Ben stared outside and saw how the clouds were thin and stringy, he realized what story brought this day. Ben could not remember his father ever telling him stories, but Ben knew that his father believed in them. He only knew that fact because he believed his grandmother on the point. He did not believe the stories that she told him, even though he knew that she believed with all of her heart that they were more real than the streaky clouds that the stories supposedly caused to occur. Ben could hear his grandmother's sweet voice as she told him the story that caused the day to exist. See, the clouds are long and slender, and they do not disappear when the sun leaves us to share his time with the jealous moon, as each one claims to love us more than the other. You know that the sun gives us life in the open. Nevertheless, the moon claims that her love is more important because she allows us rest and peace, which is a less controlling form of love. The only way that the two could can settle their dispute is that the sun gets to see us more in the summer and the moon gets to see us more in the winter. The other two seasons are in between, which balances their possessive hearts. The clouds are not that way by accident, but a rose plow for the seas of rain that will come our way soon. Things cannot just happen out of nowhere. There is an order to all things in the world. When the seeds are sown in the clouds for a slow harvest, it makes me think of the story of the healer. The sound of Mr. Gray's publicist making an announcement over the microphone interrupted Ben's reverie. Well, folks, this man is not only a great person, but he is also a genius. He has proven to me, a true skeptic at heart, that there is a truth behind every ghost story. Sometimes that truth is that it is just a story and nothing more. But there are times that the folklore is based on more than a legend. Those times that Mr. Graves found and documented the true existence of supernatural beings. But enough of this. As I promised, I wouldn't go long, so Mr. Graves wishes to give his background to you guys. So without further delay, I give you Mr. James Graves. Hey everyone, I know that I'm technically Dr. Graves, but it makes me feel like I am some sort of mad scientist waiting for his undead creature. So just call me Mr. Graves. Or James to all of you. The crowd cheered for a moment until Mr. Graves waved his hand. Okay, let me go through my favorite part of the book for you guys. I have to say that when I first thought of the concept of this book, I really did not ever think I would end up here, let alone doing television. I wanted to write this book out as a scholastic endeavor back in my ancient professor days. However, what sparked the idea for this book is the story I'm about to read you as my ex excerpt. The interesting thing is that this very story is the reason I decided to investigate the background of all these folklores and ghost stories and the rest is history. The crowd laughed until he waved his arm again, and they obeyed with silence. I know that I have been doing the ghost hunting thing for a while now, 
And you may wonder why this wasn't my first book instead of my fifth. The answer is that this was such an extensive and difficult topic that I had to really do research in order to find out what I needed to in order to make the proper conclusions. This folklore is very specific to a particular geographical location that is so remote that I nearly had to bribe people just to get on the private property of those that actually lived there. Plus, no one seemed to know any of these stories, which made it really enthralling, yet difficult to research. However, I refused to give up on my baby, and with perseverance, I was able to finally get this book finished and printed. Since this story is in fact the reason I am here today, I just wanted to pay proper tribute by reading it to you wonderful people today. The Legend of the Keeper is today's reading. The Keeper is an old man who is so tired that his eyes barely open. He strains to keep them open, which causes his eyelids to stretch sideways in a way that some would call wrinkles. He is tired because he takes on all of the things that are abandoned, forgotten, or lost in this world. This is a great burden for him to bear, and he must bear it completely alone. All these things are piled up in great hills with only a narrow path to walk through, one person at a time. There is a small clearing where he resides and communes with those who travel to see him. He will sit fireside and talk to them, but only during the night time. During the day, he will not leave his small house that he built out of tin and wood that is charred but did not burn in a fire before it was thrown out for being useless. However, if you come to him at night, he will cast lots for you using the stars in the sky to show you your future. He will use a nine-sided dice to show you your past, but the stars will show you your future. What people do not realize about the keeper is that he is not only keeping things, but he is also keeping people. His great junkyard is a fortress, a moat of junk, in order to guard the veiled. The veiled are people that sleep so soundly that they appear dead. Their beds are lined up one after another from wall to wall and piled up on top of each other from the floor to the ceiling. Their blankets are thin and white and made of weaved rough fabric. Their faces are concealed because the rest must be secret because no one wakens at the same time. To the outsider it would appear as if they have walked into a great tomb of lifeless bodies, but that is not the case. Though the veiled lived before, they will live again once they are ready to awaken. The keeper casts the lots for them as they travel to and from the place of rest. That way they can decide whether or not they want to rest at all and for how long they should rest before they go out and live again. This is the end of the fable. I did extensive research on this story because I thought it was so interesting that a seemingly Irish tale brought to America would have something to do with reincarnation. I never researched a Celtic reincarnation belief before and it puzzled me and caused me to want to find out as much as I could about the true root of this myth. I went to the town where the myth originated from, which is rare to find so easily, but my research led me to this geographical source directly. Finding the place was the easy part, 
but finding the cultural origin was a bit trickier to manage. Eventually, I found the origin of why such a myth would exist. It was not actually from Ireland, but was created by locals who were mostly of Irish descent in the turn of the last century, when an epidemic of a tuberculosis broke out. The location was high in altitude and secluded enough for the state officials to decide to put a sanitarium there with the idea that the germs would not travel very far and the cool, dry air would heal the infirmed one's lungs. The problem was that the previously sheltered locals were never exposed to the plague, but once the sanitarium was built, many fell ill. This tra tragedy, like most do, caused a story to be told that could help the folk of that simple town to deal with and explain their devastating event. The interesting part is that the now abandoned sanitarium was built next to a junkyard. When people started getting sick and dying from the exposure due to the locals taking jobs at the sanitarium rather than anything mysterious, the locals saw the junkyard as unclean also and they declared it cursed and no one would ever go there. The old man who ran the place for years supposedly was the only one who would step foot on the grounds, but they shunned him and he would only do his business at night so that no one would see him leave the place. Of course, the idea of a sanitarium was a place of rest, bed rest, more specifically. So that is how the sick would recover. If they would ever recover, they would do it after varying periods of sleep. This is such an interesting tale. I never get over how enthralling it was to actually go to the abandoned junkyard and the sanitarium and see with my own eyes how chaos can create such a lovely story. To conclude on the legend of the keeper, my conclusion is that it is not a legitimate ghost story or a myth, religious myth, but instead a local legend turned fable. Now let me give you some background on myself before we go any further. Mr. Graves continued to speak, but Ben tuned him out because of an overwhelming sense of shock that radiated from the core of his very being. He could not believe what he just heard. He searched his mind for the reason why Mr. Graves would know that story. He thought and thought until all he could hear was his grandmother's voice echoing the same story except with the introduction of how the story had brought a day filled with lightning that would illuminate the sky in the shape of a giant electric spider's whose legs would reach the ground. Ben wondered how the man knew the story. He turned to stare at the poster of Mr. Graves while he searched his memory for a glimpse of the answer. Ben was never closer than 20 feet to Mr. Graves all day thanks to Shelley. However, he noticed on the poster something that he could not see from across the store. He saw a flesh-colored mole above Mr. Graves' right eyebrow. For some reason, it was not airbrushed out of the photo. In that moment, Ben recalled where he had seen Mr. Graves before today. Ben rarely watched television, and he was certain that he never saw Mr. Graves' ghost hunting show. Instead, Ben saw Mr. Graves in photo albums that Grandma kept in her den under a wooden bench. This man was in many photos with Ben's father. Grandma told Ben that the man was named James, and he worked in the same university as Ben's father did before the two moved back to the mountains for Ben's father to perform research. Ben would always point at the mole and squeal, Yuck! What's that, Grandma? Be polite, Ben. There's nothing wrong with that mole. 
if he was a woman, it would be at called a beauty mark, and he'd be in pictures like Marilyn Monroe, so hush. Mr. Graves finished his oral presentation and returned to his place behind the table and next to the publicist. After a few more hours of book signing, the time was approaching for Mr. Graves to leave the premises. Thirty minutes before closing time, Shelley grabbed her last tray of refreshments and took them to Mr. Graves for the last time. He noticed that when she sat down, the tray down, Mr. Graves whispered something in her ear and she walked so quickly back to the coffee shop that she was almost jogging. As the last book was signed and the announcement was made that Mr. Graves was finished with his duties, the crowd made some sounds of disappointment as they were asked to leave the store. Ben looked nervously around to see where Mr. Graves was. Before he could find him, he heard a booming voice from the side of the counter. Excuse me, young man, could you please ask Shelley to come out? Ben turned around and saw that it was Mr. Graves standing there and asking for Shelley personally. Shelley disappeared into the back room to find her cell phone that she misplaced. She will be right back. Let me call her for you. Ben leaned back in the direction to the back room and said, Shelley, hurry up because you have a visitor. Tell him I'm on my way. Did you hear that? Yes, son, thanks. She's a lovely girl, that Shelley. Yes, yes, she is. You look awfully familiar to me. Have we ever met before today? What is your name, son? Ben, sir. Well, Ben, sire, it is good to meet you. The name is Ben Black, Mr. Graves. I'm very impressed with your legend of the Keeper story. But you forgot the part about the Keeper warning you about the perils you face in life and how he will cast the lots multiple times in order to show you what to do differently so that you can avoid the, a bad future. So tell me, did you pay my father his royalty check for that one? I do not recall receiving that payment as his sole heir. Ben Black, my goodness! I haven't seen you since you were knee-high to a grasshopper. You were at your father's funeral, and you looked so cute in that little navy suit and red tie. I never knew that I'd run into you again. Your father was a good man and a great scholar. He is the reason that I'm doing this today. I should thank you in honor of him. My father was great. Was he? Was he so great before or after you stole his story? What is wrong with you? And how could you do that? I was always told you two were best friends. Now, don't get the wrong idea here, Ben. I was your father's colleague and friend. We researched the same topics at times. That just happens when you work at the same university. He worked as a botanist, and you were a literature professor. How's that even related? I'm not stupid. I know you stole that story from him because it was a family story and not a local legend, as you put it. No one else in that town would ever know that story. So that is how I know 100% that you stole it from him. What I do not know is how you were able to steal it from him. You're going to pay. Mr. Graves' facial expression changed from reassuring to guilty with Ben's last statement. He ran his hand over his slick back bleached blonde hair. Now, Ben, no need to make threats. How do you know that your father didn't give me permission to use this story? Those are private family stories, and you've stolen and exploited it. You have sold my precious family, my grandma, to the highest bidder, and I'm supposed to let it go? How dare you? No, Ben, don't be like that. I will tell you the truth about it. 
but you can't prove anything in court, and I will lie through my teeth if, I, if you ever try to quote me on this. I was working with your father when he decided to leave his professor's seat so that he could write his next book. He took a sabbatical and retreated into the mountains where he was raised to do his research. I never really gave two shakes about your father's scientific research, but one day I went into his office to see if he wanted to have lunch with me. He wasn't in there, but I saw his red notebook sitting on top of the desk. I just grabbed it and looked at the page that it was open to and read a few paragraphs. He wrote out the story, and I couldn't believe that he really believed in a fairy tale. At first, I thought it was something else, but what followed it made me realize that he believed in it for real. He mapped out the ge location geographically to the story and traced certain kinds of plants to various stories like this one. I was wild with curiosity, and I wanted to read all of the stories, but I couldn't. So I made copies as quickly as I could, but I could only get part of that one story copy before I heard someone coming. I wanted to come back and get more, but he never brought that red notebook back to his office, and he was gone within two weeks, and of course dead within a few years. I tried to get him to talk about it in casual conversation, but he would always play dumb with me. I never hinted at the story specifically, but I kept asking him for the folklore stories and literature from the area he grew up in, and he never told me anything except that he was a scientist and I was a literature guy, and he would change the subject. Ben could not believe the audacity of Mr. Graves. Before he could say another word or think another thought, he jumped across the counter and wrapped his fingers around Mr. Graves' throat. Mr. Graves was very strong and pushed Ben off with great ease. Ben fell to the ground, and Mr. Graves looked around to see if anyone had noticed what had just happened. Lucky for you, no one saw that. Now, son, we are even. You pursued this legally, and I will pursue what just happened legally. Do you got me? I will get nothing from you, you dirty old thieving man. You are nothing but fraud and trash. But before Ben could complete his slanderous thought out loud, the store manager interrupted him. Ben... How dare you speak to our honored guest in such a manner? You get your things and get out of here before I have you security remove you. You're fired and banned from the store for the next six months. Your final paycheck will be mailed to you. He turned his attention to Mr. Graves. Are you all right, Mr. Graves? I am so sorry about my rude ex-employee. I am just fine, sir. I'm used to fiery kid or two as a former professor. Ben left his name tag and apron on the counter. As he left the building, he saw that Shelley finally came out of the back room and locked arms with Mr. Graves as he escorted her out through the back door. The two drove off in a black limousine that almost hit Ben as he walked to the bus stop where a bus was making its way to pick up passengers. There was a muffled cry in the crowd as the bus paused at the red light nearby and Ben looked around him to see who cried. He heard some child mumble a few words in a whiny voice and then busted out in a well. His mo young mother tried to comfort the little boy of less than two years. He was kicking and screaming so much that his mother almost dropped him. Instead, he squirmed out of her arms and ran out into the street. The mother screamed for help as she seemed immobile with fear. Out of instinct, Ben ran out into the street after the child. 
He grabbed him and ran back to the sidewalk. Before he could make it, he tripped over the curb and fell down on the pavement. The, si the young mother grabbed the child he held, and she ran off crying hysterically. Ben tried to stand up quickly, but his balance wavered. He felt as if something weighed him down, and he could not stand or move the way he wanted or needed. Ben tried to stand up again, but was still feeling wobbly in the legs. His knees buckled, and he fell down again. He was able to catch himself on the curb, but he still could not stand up properly. Ben's attention never turned to the oncoming traffic, but he heard a voice scream from behind him as a hand pulled him up by his shirt. Hey, buddy, get in already! Whoever this was, was had a strong grip, and they were able to help Ben stand up and regain his balance. Ben turned around. What? There was a man in a blue, beaten-up old Volkswagen Beetle staring at Ben. Did I stutter? Get in, pal, and make it on the double before he gets you. Who gets me? The man leaned over from the driver's seat to lift Ben, grabbed his shirt, and pulled him halfway into the car. He pointed to the back window. Him! Ben turned his head and looked through the back window to see what looked like a monster from a classic horror film. The head was larger than a human head would be, and there was twisted and gnarled dry skin on a face so thin it appeared to be that of a skeleton. Whatever this thing was, it was clinging to the back of the car and looking from the outside through the back window at Ben. It opened his mouth and shrieked so loud that it caused Ben's legs to give out again. Before he could fall down, the man pulled at Ben again. You stay in or leaving? Out of primal instinct to survive, Ben jumped in the car. Let's go, now. That was the end of chapter one. I hope you enjoyed it. Now I'm going to read, as promised, one of these stories from what is called the appendix of this book, Selected Days of Year 7 of Ben's, Ben Black's Life, Year of the Sextal, and Until the Moon Turns Blush, The 800th Cycle Since Obligation. January 1st. When the icicles stretch from the oak tree's lowest branch to the frozen ground below, it is because of the story of Dagger's Dowry. Once a man of great wealth had 100 daughters and 100 wives. He was so powerful that people brought him their daughters as an honor. The girls went willingly because it was an honor to be among one of the great wives of Tate. Tate was well known for bringing great joy and happiness to everyone who came into his presence. Each wife lived as a queen, and even though Tate was not of royal blood, Tate had 100 daughters and not one son, but he thought this was a blessing to have such healthy and beautiful daughters. All of his daughters were as happy as him, save one, who was known as Dagger. Dagger was always mad and never wanted to be with anyone. She was also the most beautiful of Tate's daughters and the most sought after by the men of the land. She did not want to have anything to do with marriage or love, and she avoided all suitors. Tate would always tell the numerous callers that Dagger was not courting at the moment, but they may call upon his remaining 99 daughters for marriage. After many years passed, Dagger remained the only unmarried daughter of Tate. She was still the most beautiful girl in the land, and Tate ran out of excuses for the suitors. He asked Dagger if she wanted to be married, and Dagger told him that she did not want marriage. 
This was unfortunate for Tate because if his daughter did not marry, she would break the law of the land that required all persons to marry by the age of 30. Dagger had only one year before she would be forced to marry the highest bidder at the court's auction. Humiliating was that Dagger would have to pay for her own dowry that the highest bidder made as a fine for her refusal to follow the law of the land. Tate did not want his daughter to go through such pain and humiliation, as word was out that the highest bidder would probably be Eagle, the cruelest man in the land. He wanted to spare his daughter the weariness of life under cruelty. He begged Dagger to make a choice, and still she refused. Tate did not know what to do, so he sought the help of the sage Ithene. Ithene survived enough for three harsh lifetimes since her wisdom kept her alive beyond others of her generation. She told Tate to hide a handmaiden behind the left curtain of Dagger's west-facing window for three nights after the new moon, and he would find his answer. Tate did as Athene suggested, and the maiden did not have anything to report until the third night, when Dagger had an unexpected visitor. When Dagger fell asleep each night, the handmaiden noticed that a cricket would come into the window and play his song for her until she fell asleep. After she fell asleep, the cricket would begin to sing a different tune than any of his kind ever made. He would leave before dawn, and no harm had ever come of it. However, on the third night, the cricket changed into a man after Dagger fell asleep. The man climbed into Dagger's bed and began to sing songs of love to her. The man never spoke. He only sang. He told Dagger that none but him could bring her happiness. He told her to wait for him, and he would come for her when the time was right. He told her that if she took another, her name would curse her heart, and she would die. When Tate found out what happened, he asked Ethene what to do about the strange man. Ethene told Tate that if he confronted Dagger, she would be so afraid that she would end her own life in shame. Athene said that Dagger did not know about this man. She only felt the effects of his enchantment. The only solution was to get the man trapped in cricket form indefinitely. Then Dagger could be free from this curse because a cricket had less magic than a man and his spell would travel no further than the sound of his chirps. To save his daughter, Tate set out a challenge for the suitors of the land. He announced that if someone could complete this challenge, the man would get Dagger's hand in marriage. He thought that Dagger would object, but she did not. The day of the challenge came, and many men showed up to win Dagger's hand. The challenge was announced to be a race to get the veil of the bride that would wear on her wedding day. The veil was in plain sight, but it was surrounded by a maze that took the smartest men hours to navigate. Tate had the maze built as a game for his children and pets. The maze had a glass tunnel that went through directly from the outside to the center. The glass tunnel was for Dagger's pet mouse, as a, and as a child she would race the mouse to see if she could beat it to the center. But she took hours while the mouse took minutes. When the race began, all of the men took off, and as Tate waited in the center to see which man would win the contest. After a few minutes, he saw a cricket traveling through the tunnel. But before he could emerge out of the end, Tate covered the end with a bottle and the bottle and bottled the cricket up and sealed it with a cork. 
The cricket chirped and chirped, and none could hear her. Dagger was finally free from the spell. She gladly married the first man to reach the veil, and she had a life full of cheer. However, no one ever saw Eagle again, and no one knew why. Some say, said that he was lost at sea while trading. Others said that he left the land to conquer new places. But only Tate knew that the cricket's bottle, which was sealed with the wisdom of Athene, would not be missed, and neither would Eagle. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Check it out next week. We'll go through chapter two, and then we'll go on to read another one of these stories. Uh, I don't know if anybody likes this or cares, but this is just me doing this thing. I hope you enjoy it. Um, And check out my sister podcast, Stephen King Book Club, called Kiss Me Fat Boy. It's really great, a lot of fun. And also, Malice After Midnight is friends of this podcast. It's a true crime podcast. Check those two out. And also, come back next week for another installment of uh, The In-Between. Bye.